it's Tuesday. Actually, for you, it's Wednesday. Unless you're listening to this on a different day, and then it could be any day of the week. It's what? <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 44 of What. I have to tell you, I must preface that Chelsea and I are on Zoom as per usual, and Chelsea has this little pixelated sunglasses effect on because I told her that I, I was having a rough week because I was recently diagnosed with OCD. And if you don't know, now you know. And it's been uh, really hard and it's kicking my butt today. And so Chelsea has employed this sunglasses filter that kind of like wobbles and shakes when she moves, which is also a very good part of it. And uh, it is honestly helping a lot. Yeah, I mean, I heard that, like, you know, I guess, like, maybe some people rely on, like, medicine that a doctor and an expert is, like, prescribed to try to help them. But, like, what I've heard, actually, is that the Zoom filter does the exact same thing. <laughs> it's the same effect. It's just, like, we need one of those high-speed disclaimers that, like, everything that Chelsea said is factually untrue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, yeah, but say, I, as I was doing that, I was like, how do I push this more to let people know who, like, don't know me and, like, don't spend time with me that this is, like, anathema to everything that I believe and stand for? And, like, that's why it's funny to me. Right, right, right. right. Um, as a person on earth today. As a person on earth today, I've told you, not for the same reason, because we don't have the same diagnosis, but I have also struggled with intrusive thoughts. And in fact, because I feel like it's something that like only very recently, and by very recently, I mean like in the last couple of years, if I see people start to talk about it, uh, I was absolutely horrified. I thought I was going to need to be like committed. And then I finally found like an article that gave it a name and said what it was. And I remember like crying with relief. Oh yeah. If intrusive thoughts make you feel bad, then like they're an intrusive thought. Like that's like the definition. That's an intrusive thought right there. Right. Because if you were like a monster, then you would think about that thought because you liked it. But having said all that and like given like that kind of disclaimer, like have you ever like, you know, maybe like if you're somebody like Ellie and you're like dealing with intrusive thoughts, like, ew, you know? (laughs) Ew. Like, ew, stop that. Nasty. Don't do it. Don't like, think the thing it. that I feel like I actually really needed to hear when I was crying on the floor and I found this article and I was reading it and I was so relieved that I was like crying. What I really actually needed instead of that article by a scientist was somebody just be like, ew, gross. Ew, don't. Stop thinking that. Anyway, all this was a joke. God, I hope this doesn't get clipped and then just like put on YouTube. Like, Chelsea doesn't believe in mental health. <laughs> Anyway, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. This is the part documentary, part roundtable discussion competition podcast. It's all of those things. And I am your host, Ellie Main. And with me, as always, is the wonderful, fantastic Chelsea Huffish. Thank you. Are you just saying that because you could sense that I bought your Christmas presents today? Yeah. I have been looking forward to this all day off of aforementioned Terrible Brain Day. Yeah. I was like, I can't wait till I just get to be a little gremlin in my headphones and drink a beer and hang out with my friend Charles. Oh, well, I hope I can deliver. Cause like I said, I have, I have, I think a really stacked deck of five fun fast facts. <laughs> and then I'm very excited about my topic, which for once is not a real downer. <laughs> Chelsea hit me with them. Five fun fast facts. Okay. Are you fucking ready? Probably not. <laughs> well, because you know I love a theme, so these five fun fast facts have a theme. It's child actors. Ooh. We're start with Jessica Biel, who was a child actor. I don't know if you know this. I cannot imagine this happening in 2020. Jessica Biel grew up being, as like a teenager, being on Seventh Heaven, which was a show about a Christian family, and the dad was like a minister. And she didn't want to be on the show anymore, and she asked to be let out of her contract, and they said no. And so then she oh. went through her contract to try to figure out if there were any loopholes to let her out of her contract. Nice. There was one loophole and it was a morality clause because the show was about a Christian family. So Jessica Biel at 17 posed topless on the cover of Gear Magazine, which was like a raunchy men's magazine. What? And they fired her from the show. So she got what she wanted because they were like, you've embarrassed like our good Christian show. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, but also, again, was underage. And they super gross on this magazine for like publishing the cover of an underage girl. Is that not illegal? I mean, her titties aren't out because it's a cover, a magazine cover and not a magazine like Uh, red. But I mean, like she's like, she's got like one arm like holding her breasts. So she did a topless photo shoot. Right. As a teenager. 
Moving right along, this is okay. the one that inspired this Five Fun Fast Facts theme. Did you know that Frankie Muniz does not remember being on Malcolm in the Middle or any part of his childhood stardom? Um, what? Yeah. He, that show he, was like 10 years long. I know. It was like the core part of his childhood. And it was also like the biggest show in the world when it was on. Yeah. He had, he had a combination of a series of mini strokes when he was a teenager. And then he had several concussions. And now he, he uh, suffers from long-term memory loss and he has no memory of being on the show. He says the handful of times that he's watched an episode, it's felt like watching it for the first time. Or like, or like knowing that it happened for the first time. Whoa. So then to bring it back to like a slightly lighter place, which is, uh, do, you know, do you know the show Drake and Josh? Yes. Okay, turns out Drake Bell realized that he has a sizable following in Mexico. So as of 2020, he has moved to Mexico, changed his name to Drake Campaña, which Campaña is Spanish for Bell, which is his last name. Okay, so he changed his name from Drake Bell to Drake Campaña, and he now makes uh, music solely in Spanish in Mexico. Like he just basically was like, look, I go where I'm wanted. This was my thing. This has actually always been my thing. I've actually always been like a Latin pop star. Number four, little Cindy Brady from the Brady Bunch. She was the youngest Brady. Yeah. Producers felt that her hair wasn't blonde enough because you know how like blonde children, well, you definitely know, blonde children have like really light blonde hair, right? Yeah, like Scandinavian, yeah. Yeah, and so they wanted her to have that kind of blonde hair. So they started bleaching her hair every week to try to keep it this like perfect angelic blonde. And it was so caustic that no. at like the age of like nine, her hair started falling out in clumps. And oh. only until her parents showed her that, that she had literal bald spots like on her head, did they stop. Why is the world so mean to children? I don't know. There's especially like in the 60s and 70s, they just treated child actors like a prop. Like a prop yeah. that you could just like throw around and do whatever, change however you wanted. So that was Cindy. And then the last one, which is the darkest one. Do you remember Star Wars The Phantom Menace? Yeah. And you remember there's like a little kid that played Anakin? Oh yeah. Well, apparently, because as I think we all also remember, Phantom Menace was very poorly received as a film. The world like cyber bullied this kid out of like acting. So no. he was so emotionally destroyed by the reactions to the movie and to his performance as like an 11 year old child that he gave up acting for the rest of his life. For a while he supported himself only by going to Star Wars conventions to do like oh. signings and stuff. And then he eventually completely sort of like left public life altogether. Part of it was his family revealed that he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so like he moved back to be closer with his family to get support, which actually I think, I think being able to like have like a, a support system and be close to your family is a is a really good thing for that kind of mental health struggle. Well, mental yeah. health, a real thorough line. It is, isn't it? In this theme. Well, thank you for those uh, five tales of trauma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're smelcom. Chelsea, what's the name of your topic? The name of my topic is The World's Worst Director. Yum. <laughs> um, oh, I could name so many people. But so yeah, who do you think is the world's worst director? I don't know. I mean, you, you know, you hear all these stories about people that are terrible to work with. Yeah. Is it about a famous director who's an asshole to work with? No, because that would have been too much of a bummer. That's true. That is a bummer. I mean, I will say that like... Some of the, when I was looking at the child actors and stuff, reading about, I don't know what his name is, but the guy who directed um, Wizard of Oz, apparently they would like starve Judy Garland and like give her methamphetamines. Oh my God. So that she could stay. I mean, it was the thirties. I don't think they understood what amphetamines did to people. Yeah. So they were just like some of this wakey wakey powder. <laughs> yeah, we got 16 more hours to go, Judy. And she's like, I haven't eaten in three days. And they're like, you look great. It's messy. Holy shit. So is it about a filmic director? Um, In a way, gosh. In a way. The world's worst director. Because I was like, it's either like a director of a film or like a director of a company. Is it about Enron? 
Oh, I'm just so excited about how excited you are. But no, I guess now having you put it that way, between it being a director of a business and the director of a film, it is a director of a film. This is a film related topic. Is it about Quentin Tarantino? Ooh, a harsh cut coming in. Kind of freaks me out. All right. Well, I could do that all day. You kind of freaks me out. Well, let's leave it there. I think you're going to have fun. Okay. My title. Tell me immediately. Is a Rosicrucian Oath and a Cursed Jewel. A Rosicrucian? Rosicrucian Oath and a Cursed Jewel. But I said cursed just for fun. That is fun. <laughs> I'm going to be real with you. I don't know what the word Rosicrucian is. Mm-hmm. Neither did I. Oh, okay, good. It makes me feel better. It was one of those classic things where I've, like, I've done like five pages of, pages of research mm-hmm. and then I find the thing that like should have been the topic. So maybe I can do like a part two. Uh-huh. But yeah, so we'll just, it's cursed, the cursed jewel. Harry Potter and the cursed jewel. The cursed jewel. No, it's nothing actually to do with Harry Potter. It just felt like a Harry Potter title. It just connected. Yeah. Oath and cursed jewel. Is it about that yellow diamond that like is always going missing? No. Hmm. A different diamond that's always going missing. Not a diamond. <laughs> Not a diamond. Not a diamond. Is it about the movie Uncut Gems, best movie of 2019? Yeah. No. <laughs> Damn it. This is the Rosicrucian Oath. And a cursed jewel. So I'm going to tell you the story of a cursed amethyst. <gasps> I love an amethyst. I thought that you did. And I also thought that the fact that it is potentially, possibly, and probably cursed would That's intrigue it. you. So this amethyst has another name, cool, which is the Delhi Purple Sapphire. But it's not a sapphire, though. It's an amethyst. But it was... I misidentified as a sapphire for a long, long time, which is why it has this alternative name. Mm -hmm. People call it a purple sapphire, but it is in fact an amethyst. And it sat hidden away for 30 years beneath the Natural History Museum of London until 1972, when a curator was curating, Mm -hmm. a guy called Peter Tandy, and he found this gem inside of its box. He picked it up and it's kind of, uh, it's a pretty big amethyst set in this like pretty, like ugly silver ring decorated with alchemical and astrological signs all around it. Ooh. And I mean, that is so fun. Yeah, he picked it up and underneath there was a note. And in this note, there was the strange, sad tale that earned this stone the reputation of being trebly cursed. Not terribly cursed, but trebly. Three times over cursed. Trebly. I like that. I'm writing that one down from my back pocket. So cursed, in fact, that its last owner locked it away in seven boxes and de- sent it to a bank, decreeing that the bank that it could not be opened until three years after his death. This literally sounds like the opening montage of like National Treasure 3. I know. And I think we have to write it. Yeah. And I, I'm already there. I'm up. <laughs> yeah. So- yeah. Yeah. You might be wondering, but probably not if you know anything at all about history, you might be wondering, why is this Indian stone buried beneath a museum in London? Oh, I have some guesses, but I am going to keep them to myself for now. It's cool. It's, 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 but why? It's called imperialism. Oh, no! <laughs> so, oh, India was a pretty big jewel of the British Empire. <laughs> Pardon the pun. And... Don't get... Uh, huh? So don't get cute. <laughs> okay. And the, in 1857, Indian soldiers rose up against their British officers from the British East India Company who were ruling India under the crown. Um, they had this big rebellion in 1857, which kind of failed because the British army was very big and very good at being an army. And they did not like rebels. No, no, no. Because if India was to become independent, then what about all the other colonies? A (laughs) foreshadow of the future. The army, rather miffed after this, decided to deter future would-be rebels by ransacking and looting hundreds of sacred shrines, temples, and Indian palaces in obviously a very orderly manner. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hello, well, I mean, here. I here's our piece of paper. Imply. 
here's a piece of paper that I wrote about how I can come in and steal all your stuff. So stand aside. Um, they stole countless ancient Indian treasures from sacred chambers, which totally sucks. I saw, you know, there's, there's been that like Twitter thing going around that's like, what isn't blah, but feels blah. Have oh, you seen yes. any of those? Yeah, yes. And, and now- one of them was like, what isn't British but feels British? And someone said the entire contents of the Natural History Museum and British Museum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I think we've talked about it before. It's pretty fucked up if you go to the British Museum, there's like the entire remnants of the Parthenon, you know, like yeah. the most important structure of ancient Greece from Athens. But it's in London and now it's too delicate to move. So sorry. Can't do it. <laughs> like, oh, mine, actually. Mine. So we're in the spirit. We're in the spirit of a little. British colonial officer who has a little grabby hands mine idea. He goes to, he on his list to ransack, is the temple of Indra in Kanpur. Indra is the Hindu god of war and thunder and is depicted riding a white elephant carrying a lightning bolt, which is like cool as fuck. I do like that Very a lot. badass. I've always wanted to be able to carry a lightning bolt. Yeah. So imagine this beautiful, gorgeous... Indian temple, you know, they like in the Hindu culture, they love like, you know, adornments and gold color and richness and, and, you know, everything being uh, a huge tribute to the God. And then uh, like, you know, up toffs <laughs> this little Bengal cavalry man, Colonel W. Ferris. And he found this sapphire inside of that temple, uh, which is in fact an amethyst. He found this amethyst inside of the temple, thinking that it would forever secure the wealth of his family did a little mm-hmm. pinch, did a little pilfer, took it back to England, didn't he? Sure did. As soon as he got it back to England, his whole family suffered not only a string of financial misfortunes, which he blamed on his own like poor planning, but every Ferris in his generation got a different, extremely serious disease. <laughs> oh, 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 no. That took a lot of their lives for the most part. Shit. Um, Are there enough diseases to even do that? What am in, I saying? What am I saying? <laughs> what am I saying? In, uh, in 1857, yeah, I mean, you could die from a cold. Ferris's so. <laughs> son inherited the stone and was obviously like, oh, no thanks. Ooh, no, pass, it, stinky. pass it on to a friend who completely out of the blue killed themselves. Oh. And willed the stone back to Ferris, to Ferris Jr. <laughs> this is fun. So this, so then he's like, oh, fuck, I don't want this anymore. So in 1890, Ferris's son, Ferris Jr., gave the stone to a guy called Edward Heron Allen, mm-hmm. who he was like big mates with Oscar Wilde. He was a polymath, what we learned about. A a genius of many fields He was a writer, a scientist His main thing was translating Arabic Translating Arabic literature uh, Into English But he was also very accomplished In the art of palmistry And he Had taken a Rosicrucian oath Oh, we're going to finally figure this out As soon as I saw that, I was like, what? (laughs) So Rosicrucians are A worldwide brotherhood claiming to possess esoteric wisdom handed down from ancient times. Okay. And they have to, like, elect a member to succeed them when they pop off. And it's this very sort of, like, it's a lot of, like, Christian mysticism. It's kind of, like, more spiritual than being a Mason, but it's that vibe. Okay. So he's in this order. Each member under undertakes an oath to heal the sick without accepting payment, maintain a secret fellowship, and find a replacement for themselves before they die. Um, There is so much to go into about this wild... (laughs) It's sort of like a hermetic society. Okay. Um, It's very interesting, and there's so much to say about it. So he was a part of this thing. He was very skeptical about the, the, the supposed curse of this jewel, Otherwise, you know, why else would he have taken it if he believed this that? This guy it, was skeptical. Like, if he believed Mr. that it took Old people's Mitch. lives and like 
took everyone's like wealth, health and happiness, essentially, then he wouldn't have taken it. He was kind of like, well, what? I mean, I'm the expert in this field. So give me the jewel and let's see. Very what quickly. an entitlement. Uh, well, Only I get to be magic stuff. A white man in the 19th century? <laughs> a white man? No! That doesn't make any sense. Uh, he quickly changed his mind when he began to suffer a bad, like, you know, a bad luck with capital letters that also extended into his family and friends. Believing that it was like special and that this that they could have power over it, a friend of his who was a singer asked to borrow Stone. And he was like, mm, I don't know if you want to do that. And she was like, no, I do. And apparently when, as soon as she became in possession of the stone, she completely lost her singing voice and could never sing again. <gasps> and, yeah, gave the, <laughs> and gave the stone back. So he was like, okay, so this is an evil stone. <laughs> <laughs> this is starting to feel like a Monty Python sketch of just like, each person being like, okay, but like, not me though. Give me the stone. But not me. Yeah, yeah. Increasingly ridiculously bad things happen to them. It's very the one ring. Yeah. I mean, I can carry it. I'll be fine. Oh, no way. Oh, I'm actually not fine. I'm actually not fine at all. So he decided that he could neutralize the evil of the stone. <laughs> so he bound it in the silver ring, which still sits in now, which is a double-headed snake. And then it has two amethyst scarab beetle beads above it to like contain the evil. Yeah. And then all the way around it are the 12 symbols of the zodiac. Okay. That's where this comes in. You're going to case that in there. And he was like, cool, hate this, threw it into the Regent's Canal in London. Okay. Probably smart. Three months later, it was recovered by a dredger and an art dealer recognized it and it made its way back. To Edward Heron Allen. <laughs> Can you imagine that day where you're like, oh, three months, curse free, and someone's like, hello, I'm an art dealer from Fotherington Smythe, and uh, I believe this belongs to you. And just be like, fucking hell. So it came back. He decreed that this jewel was, and I quote, stained with the blood and dishonor of everyone who has owned it. <laughs> Uh, that includes you, bitch. You wanted it. I know, he really effed up. So he hung on to it because he didn't want anyone else to have it and suffer the consequences. And in 1904, when his daughter was born, he sent the stone with all of its gilding to a banker and uh, to ensure that his daughter would never even touch it. It was locked away in seven boxes and decreed that it could those boxes could not be opened until three years after he had died. Mm -hmm. to keep its evil at bay. And as all of that was decreed three years after his death in 1943, she gave it to the museum. The letter that said, <laughs> whoever shall open, read this, read this story, and then do as you please with the stone. My advice is to cast it into the sea. I cannot because I have taken the Rosicrucian oath. <laughs> oh, did she succeed her dad? She included a note that was written by him. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. That told the whole story of the jewel and how it had been taken by Ferris from the Indian temple. And this they're saying you should be you should throw it into the sea because I can't. But they didn't do that. Wait a say that's very one ring as well. It's very one ring, yes. They didn't do that because I mean you can't. <laughs> like an an ancient old stone that has been like has come into the ownership of a museum, you can't destroy it. Yeah. So there have been interesting incidents that have occurred since that time that align very much with this idea of a, of a very much cursed jewel. Okay. So in the year 2000, 20 years ago, John Whittaker took the amethyst to the first annual symposium of Edward Heron Allen, which I think is probably the last thing that he would have wanted. Yes. It's to be reunited in death <laughs> with, with this fucking stone. stone. But again, like that, I don't know, that fits the curse. Mm -hmm. It found its way back. On the way to the symposium, he was driving with his wife. He said, the sky before them turned black and we were overtaken by the most horrific thunderstorm I have ever experienced in my life. And his wife was apparently screaming at him saying, why did you bring that fucking thing? <laughs> 
And yet he was tasked with taking it back the subsequent subsequent two years. The second time he fell violently ill with an awful stomach bug. Oh. And the third time he collapsed and turned out he had serious, serious kidney stones. Oh no, those are awful. So it now resides in the history natural history museum in London, South Kensington. You can go and see it. You should look it look it up. It looks, you know, just like a weirdly decorated stone. But apparently he has been the reason behind many great strifes of anyone who possesses it. So hopefully the museum is doing okay. Maybe well, technically no one owns it now. I guess. Well, I was going to say, is it responsible for Brexit? Because, oh. <laughs> like, Britain owns it. No one has. Yeah, actually, that hasn't been investigated. Yeah. You know what? Maybe they should just, I don't know, give it back. That's what I was going to say is like, could they not just trace it back and, and then like put ask, it back? Yeah. And ask the people and, you know, apologize and see if there's some sort of like, I don't know, like, I mean this genuinely, like a ritual or something that they can do to say, sorry, for, sorry. Please have so Um, But yeah. That's really interesting. A very fascinating story. That is the tale of the cursed amethyst. Wow. Smell an ore. Smell yeah. more. No, smell. You will. I know you will. Uh, I'm going to give you, as always, seven points for research. Oh, and I'm going to give you, and you know I have to take away, like, three points for colonialism. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm going to return five points, and here's why. I love, 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 love as a genre, like the sort of treasure hunting stories and i've always wanted to be able to write one like a modern day Ooh, kind of treasure yes. story the issue is that so much of what we have to draw on from that genre is kind of deeply problematic when it comes yeah. to like you know it's you want like this like amazing treasure but it's like where are you going to get it and who are you taking it from and who did it originally right. belong to and like all this kind of stuff uh but you've given me a really fun idea which i guess like i should have maybe it was in some ways there all along, like the one ring. So TM, 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 but it's just like, what about a story of like having to put something back as opposed to trying to take something? Mm. It's, I think, actually a really fun angle. Having to return a cursed yeah. jewel. Yeah. That means it has to be in your possession until you return it. Which, ooh, which will suck. Yeah, which yeah. will probably suck very bad. Some real bubble boy energy. <laughs> bubble boy, the the 2002 Jake Gyllenhaal vehicle that is my go-to for any time we have to talk about a movie where bad shit happens to somebody. I'm like, oh yeah, like in Bubble Boy. Like in Bubble Boy. Like in everyone's oh. favorite movie, Bubble Boy. Oh, everyone's, oh, there's this tweet that I can't stop thinking about that like I laugh at every single fucking time, which is this comedian, Mitra Juhari, who is a Persian woman. And she just posted like a picture of Jake Gyllenhaal when he was in Prince of Persia and they had like slathered him in like Ariana Grande makeup. And he's like holding this fucking, this fucking scepter in like in a palace. And uh, <laughs> this fucking blue eyes. And uh, she's my ancestor. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. It's incredible. My ancestor. Well, first of all, we have to start by talking about what is, by most people's account, a pretty good movie, which is a movie from 1969 called Death of a Gunfighter. Okay. Death of a Gunfighter was your typical Western. If you see the uh, the original really cool kind of like retro 60s poster for it, uh, the tagline for the movie is, he lived by the law of the gun. Now the town used it to destroy him. And then there's like two exclamation points, which I right. feel like we're not allowed to do anymore. <laughs> you know, you're definitely not allowed to do multiple punctuations. Oh, I'm so sorry. I've, I've zoomed in. I've enhanced. Enhance. It's actually three exclamation points. Excellent. He lived by the law of the gun, dot, dot, dot. Now the town used it to destroy him. Dot, dot, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Incredible. So, I mean, Death that's of the Gunfighter, released in 1969, 
Uh, and it earned praise pretty much all around. New York Times said the film was sharply directed by Alan Smithy, who has an adroit facility for scanning faces and extracting sharp background detail. And even legendary film critic Roger Ebert at the time commented, director Alan Smithy, a name I'm not familiar with, allows his story to unfold naturally. I feel like a lot of reviews of that era are like, I could make out the shapes. I know it is really fun. <laughs> oh, I like your new little. Now you, you're like a little like Cabbage Patch Kid, yeah. like a little plant coming out of your head. That's cute. Oh, you're a sprout. That's very cute. Roger Ebert, despite being an incredible, like I said, just like a, a vast like uh, encyclopedia of film knowledge could be forgiven for not being familiar with the name Alan Smithy because Alan Smithy, director of Death of a Gunfighter, as well as several other movies over the next four <laughs> decades, uh, does not exist. To bring it real circle back to uh, the first ever episode of what? This is not a real person. Is it a lady pseudonym? It's not a lady pseudonym. It is a pseudonym. And this is what it is for. So the Directors Guild of America is a union for directors that is meant to protect a lot of things. But one of the main things that they protect, the Writers Guild does similar things, is the artistic integrity of a director's work. This is really important, especially on like studio films, because, you know, as you and I know, and we haven't even... Like you and I know from the projects that we've worked on, let alone like a studio film, right. that there's hundreds of people working to make this one thing, right? Yeah. As director, they're supposed to all be kind of working under your vision. But obviously yeah. there are a lot of different ways in which that can go wrong. And yeah. so the Directors Guild is meant to put certain requirements in place to help a director safeguard their own artistic vision. So like, for example, there is a minimum number of hours that a director is allowed to be in the editing room with the editor of a film. So like the editor is not, is not allowed under the the director's guild of America guidelines to like hoard the film away from the director. Cause then Mm -hmm. an editor could really kind of just do whatever the fuck they want. So the director has a minimum number of hours that they're just sort of contractually allowed to be in the editing room with the editor and Mm -hmm. the editor doesn't get to say no. That's one example. However, even with this, and there've been a lot of high profile cases about this, there are still several times in which directors feel that like studio interference or problems on set or, you know, arguments with a writer or whatever have Mm -hmm. left them with a product that has their name on it that they don't feel like they got to actually exhibit, like exert creative control over. Right. So Directors Guild of America had to figure out what to do about that because I, I guess also for Guild purposes, they couldn't have movies that were directed by no one, <laughs> which is what some of these people wanted. Uh, and they weren't not going to put the movie out because the studio spent all this money on it. So they were like, oh, okay. so you're saying like after the movie was finished, some directors were so unhappy that they didn't want their name on it? Yeah. they. I mean, and wow. I mean, We've all been there. Like my example, and I feel like it's exactly the same if you think about it, uh, is when I was a junior in high school, I was in a film, like a high school film program. It was really weird. I'm not going to get super into it, but I will say basically the teacher that ran it was an English teacher. And he was definitely like that English teacher. Like he made us all watch... um, uh, Dead Poet Society every semester. Yes. Yeah, he was that teacher. And so he created a class that was not for like, it wasn't part of your degree program. You didn't get like any real credit for it. You got general academic credit, which like didn't go towards your high school diploma. Uh, He made a class where the fall semester was film studies, where we got to like make movies. And then the spring semester was creative writing because those were two things he was interested in. Uh, But he just got to hand choose like what, like what students were in it. So like you couldn't apply to the class. You had to be invited by him. And he just no. got to choose. Oh, it was weird. I loved it because I was one of the ones that got chosen. But I recognize now how like completely fucked up that was. And it was just like basically like me and my friend group. And we were in this fucking class. Oh my God. Yeah. So we were doing that. And we had to make a movie. It was one of the, we made like a short film. Right. And I was technically the director like that was my role for that one Mm -hmm. and I had also written the script so I wrote it I directed it and then my friend who shall remain nameless 
uh, we'll call her Shillery. Shillery, <laughs> you'll never guess what her real name is. So that's fine. She's protected. Shillery got a new boyfriend. Shillery was supposed to edit the movie. Shillery put it off until the day before it was due. Shillery and her boyfriend edited it. But all they did was they just took the clips that were like, they took what we had shot in sequence, which was out of sequence, and just put it like in Windows Movie Maker and just did it like that. And Shillery, come on. Yeah. And oh, this is what it was. I was the writer. I was not the director. Somebody else was supposed to be the director. But Shillery put directed by Chelsea on there in addition to write. Uh, and I was like, how? And I remember like getting up and saying, I did not direct that because that it was not how. That was not how I had written it. That was, it made, it literally was like incoherent. It made no sense. Uh, and it was so obvious that like Shillery, again, to protect her, uh, had, was having so much fun with her boyfriend that they just like put it off and put it off and put it off and then did that. So I was like, okay, I can totally understand. Now I've had literally the exact same experience. It's the exact same experience. It's actually the exact same as like a director in a studio film who's like, I don't want my name on this. (laughs) This is so far from what I said I was going to do and what I set out to do. And the stakes are the same. And the stakes were actually the exact same. So, (laughs) so this is how it came about for death of a gunfighter, which is actually the first, the first use by the DGA of the name Alan Smithy. Um, so originally, uh, this movie was supposed to be directed by a man named Robert Totten, but nine days into filming the lead actor, whose name was Richard Widmark. I know like none of these names really matter, but like first director, lead actor, like big action star, big action stars. Like I hate first director. He's bad. And this is like in the sixties when directors weren't as like as big deal. Right. And so, or like as well known. And so he's like, I hate first director, get rid of him. And the studio (laughs) said, okay, that's fine. Um, we will bring in second director. Second director is this guy named Don Siegel. Siegel then later says, okay, well, I only got to do like 10 days of filming. Totten, after all things were said and done, did 25 days of filming. And then to make it even more like start to feel kind of like a psychology problem, they (laughs) each had almost an exactly equal amount of footage in the final edit. (laughs) So like, so it, when the movie was finished, half of the movie had been made by first director and half of the movie had been made by second director and neither of them wanted credit for it. (laughs) So it went, it went in front of the DGA because the DGA is who is in charge of who gets credit for what in movies. And when it comes to like a directorship and stuff like that. Yeah. So they, they assembled a panel and the panel heard both sides like as if it were like a judge judy court of like i don't want this movie well i don't want this movie you Uh, take it no you they the dga ultimately agreed that neither because the movie was half this guy's movie and half this guy's movie that neither of their true total creative vision had been represented by the film so then they had to figure out what what are we gonna do in its place and they were like well we should create a pseudonym for to give credit to and originally the idea was to name it al smith but then they found out that there already was a working director who was registered with the dga (laughs) al smith so then that's how they decided to go to first they did smythe which you somebody in your story was named smythe and i always think that smythe is uh maybe the most british last name i've ever heard in my life oh i always always use it as a double-barreled name fotherington smythe is my go-to toffee british name Oh, right. Yeah, like Huntington Smythe. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so they were thinking about Smythe, but then they settled on Smithy because they felt like it was distinctive enough that you wouldn't confuse it with a real director, which would be very embarrassing. But it wasn't so distinctive as to be like a very obvious pseudonym. It wasn't like Consuela Banana Hammock. <laughs> <laughs> it was just Alan Smithy. And again, it worked because like I said, when Death of a Gunfighter was finally released, directed by Alan Smithy, New York Times, Roger Ebert, like all the major players in like the film industry we're just like, oh, who's this like new hotshot? And it's not like they can go look up his IMDb profile. Right. But now you can. And you can look up Alan Smithy 
uh, career profile because there have been dozens of directors over the years that have used Alan Smithy to disavow their film. Uh, (gasps) Yes. Some of the more like well-known movies that are credited to Alan Smithy would be The Twilight Zone, the movie from 1983. No way. Well, this one is weird. Um, The reason why, and this is also the only example in the history of the Alan Smithy cinematic universe that Alan Smithy is credited as an assistant director and not as the director. Uh, And it's because, and I remember hearing about this, two of the child actors were killed in a helicopter accident during production that happened because of like onset negligence. And so the second assistant director was so disgusted, you know, that to be a part of that production and also that like, you know, the movie was going to still be released after this horrible tragedy that he didn't want his name on it. And it's the only instance in which the DGA has allowed an assistant director to use the Alan Smithy credit. Wow. Yeah. So that's one example. Uh, Another like relatively, at least like recognizable name would be uh, The Birds 2. <laughs> I think we can all imagine that maybe Birds 2 isn't one that you really want. As in on... a follow-up to Hitchcock's The Birds? Yeah. Great, great, great. Did you know that they made a Birds 2 in I the didn't, 90s? I didn't know that. Birds 2, more birds. They, they should not have. Birds 2, get them birds. Wait a bird. And then uh, another one that I saw that I thought was really fun was... Um, National Lampoon Senior Trip. Again, kind of a... Uh, oh, that sounds like a terrible movie. I was going to say, maybe it's like not a movie that you really want on your resume. That's no. the thing, though, is that you're not allowed to use the Alan Smithy credit if you basically like, take a job that's embarrassing and then are later like, I don't want anybody to know no, I did that. You have to be able to successfully... This is a thing that you that you don't get to just do of your own accord. You have to successfully lobby to the DGA that your like, creative vision please, was please, please don't put this on my resume, please. Right, so you can't just be like, this movie sucks, or like, I wish I hadn't done that, or I hate this movie. You have to prove that somehow it wasn't your creative choice. Yeah, because otherwise they're like, yeah, you made a shitty movie, own it. Yeah, sorry, your movie's bad. Yeah, uh, this one I think is really fun. So th- this one is really fun, but it's also like kind of a, an aside, or it's like another part of the topic, which uh-huh. is that, There are also cases in which a movie that is otherwise attributed correctly to its director gets to use the Alan Smithy credit in certain situations. And the most common one is for in-flight editing. Because, I don't know, I'm not very fancy, so I rarely take flights where, like, they have an in-flight movie. But... Or I guess maybe that's not true. I just like never watch them. But they always edit in-flight movies, even if the movie is like PG-13, to be just like completely sanitized. This movie has been edited to fit this format. Yeah. Okay. Well, so obviously that that movie has now been edited away from the director's original vision. So not every director, of course, but several directors of very high profile movies use the Alan Smithy credit only when a movie is shown in um, in in flight. So uh, one example would be the director Martin Brest uses it for all of his films if they're edited for television or for in flight viewing. So his movies include. Um, scent of a woman meet joe black uh, oh yeah so like big big movies right is that just because he doesn't want to have to deal with re-editing them well i mean he wouldn't re he, i think that is out of his control like I, because you know usually when things go to cable okay. or they go to syndication they get it's part of a different deal yeah so they they send it to whatever third-party contractor the airline uses to sanitize mm-hmm. the movie. And so, yeah, Martin Brest, or like another big name uh, director, is not going to go sit in that post house for three months right. and see how they're going to chop up their movie. So another big director that always uses an Alan Smithy credit only for television would be uh, Michael Mann, who has done The Insider and Heat, which is a very well-known yeah. movie. Um, and then these examples I think are really, really funny. There was this movie called The Nut House that came out in 1992. That was like a real sort of like early nineties zany comedy. Like everybody's okay. playing like a real character. We're all crazy. And it's about like a guy who has like multiple personality disorder, but like all the different characters, all the different characters get like their own actors, basically. Right. So it's like this real zany thing. Um, Sam Raimi wrote it. <laughs> 
and Bruce Campbell also helped write it. So like a few big names. So, and then Scott Spiegel and Adam Rifkin directed it. They all disavowed this movie so hard because, oh, sorry. Spiegel was replaced as director by somebody else. And then the writers felt like Spiegel changed their vision so much that all the writers got to have an Alan Smithy credit. So the way they did it was Ivan Ramey was Alan Smithy senior. Oh, sorry. Ivan Ramey was Alan Smithy senior. Sam Ramey was Alan Smithy junior. And then Bruce Campbell was ROC Standstorm because why not? Because <laughs> at that point, you're out of names. They were all the way out of names. And then Scott Spiegel, the director, was just uncredited and they credited it back to the original director who I guess didn't get to get on the fun like Alan Smithy thing. David Lynch, noted weirdo. Yeah, famously. Famous famous weirdo. Really hates the broadcast television edit of Dune. Okay. Uh, and Which he wrote and directed. So yeah. when Dune is, the 1984 Dune is shown on television, the director is Alan Smithy. And then for his screenwriting credit, he requested and was granted Judas Booth, a reference to Judas Iscariot and John Wilkes Booth, because that's how much he hates it. Whoa. (laughs) Uh, What a choice. (laughs) I know. He's like, oh, my beautiful masterpiece, Dune, and you're going to edit it for television? Oh, my God. (sighs) The Alan Smithy pseudonym was unofficially retired in 2000. which I think if you think about it really kind of dovetails with the rise of the internet Um, and the curse of the amethyst and also the curse of the amethyst. If you think about it, fuck no, (laughs) (laughs) they had to retire the Alan Smithy pseudonym because with the rise of the internet, it, it would have always been kind of an open secret, but now really like there was just no way. There's no hiding it. it. Yeah. It, it no longer served its purpose. If its whole purpose was, to obscure who had actually directed the movie because they were disavowing the project, then being able to look it up, which like, you know, now in the year of our Lord 2020, you can do on Wikipedia and just see a list of every Alan Smithy film and then who actually directed it, uh, then it it serves absolutely no purpose. So now they will use different pseudonyms. They're like, this still happens, but they use like different pseudonyms for for people. And then occasionally they do still bring out the Alan Smithy, but a lot of times now it's just like a joke. Right. <laughs> um, but then there was one last thing that I want to talk about with the Alan Smithy saga, because I think it's very funny. <laughs> there was this movie that came out in 1997 called an Alan Smithy film, colon, burn Hollywood burn. And the movie is actually credited to Alan Smithy, which I thought at first was a promotional thing. But it turns out it's not. This movie, an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, which stars a lot of very famous people mostly playing themselves, like right. Goldberg, Jackie Chan, um, Billy Bob Thornton. It all takes place in Hollywood, and it's about unfo- like a very unfortunate aspiring director whose name really is Alan Smithy. Uh, and he gets the job he gets the job of his life which is making this big budget action film with all these very famous people and when the studio recuts the film they change it so much that he wants to disavow the film but he can't because the only pseudonym available is is alan smithy so then he uh he steals the film and threatens to destroy it. And like, that's like, it's like this madcap comedy movie. So when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's funny. Like they made like this sort of like insider industry movie. And so it's like a perfect kind of dovetail in marketing for them to call it, to, to use the Alan Smithy pseudonym for the director. But yeah. that's actually not what happened. What happened was the director was this guy named Arthur Hiller and Similar to what happened in the actual, in the movie, in the scripted movie, the studio had this guy named Joel Esterhaus recut the film after the original cut. Uh, And the recut was so different that he wanted his name removed. (laughs) And uh, so then he asked for, he asked for the Alan Smithy thing on his own movie about Alan Smithy. Oh my God. (laughs) Like he made him, it's, 
it's like boggling my brain to even try to explain it. So I feel yeah. like I'm not explaining it well. But well, no, I feel like we're in a time made, paradox, but I understand it. Yes. This guy made a comedy movie about a director whose movie gets recut and is bad. And he wants to use the name Alan Smithy. And the movie is called Alan Smithy. And then the actual director of that movie had a terrible recut and wanted to use the pseudonym Alan Smithy. Did he play <laughs> Alan Smithy? No, but man, that would have been really fun if it had all come real circle. No, Alan Smithy was played by, oh, a um, a python. A python? By, by Eric Idle. Oh, really? Yeah. Now it's really coming real circle because it's connecting to something that Ellie loves. So that is the infamous, illustrious career of the worst director in the world, Alan Smithy. Incredible. Incredible. Chelsea, I'm going to give you eight points for Alan himself. Oh my god! I had no idea. I I had no idea about that. That is so funny. It's um, a- <laughs> I'm gonna give you. Give me one second to find it. Oh, I'm no. gonna give you four extra points for the tagline of the Nut House. Go on. <laughs> which is sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you are. Oh, that's not good. It's very good, actually, is what it is. Um, <laughs> And also just the the cover of it. Good Lord. Check it really, it's one of the most 90s things I think I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. It just from every single part of it screams at you. It's incredible. And then I'm going to have to take away three points for your crush on Sasha Baron Cohen. <gasps> Unfair. Fine. I, I can't so. wait to show you that TikTok. I think it is fair. Um, and those are my points. It says, it says. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and that is our show. Do you want to hear what I'm making for dinner? Yep. <clears throat> I'm making seared polenta cakes Ooh. topped with sun-dried tomato and kale, massage kale with a Mornay sauce because I've been wanting to make a Mornay sauce. That sounds amazing. I'm very excited. I'm jealous. Ooh, you should be, huh? Well, Chelsea, where can people find you? People can find me actually all over social media at Chelsea Harfouche. And you can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram and Ellie Maney on Twitter. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Twitter, Instagram, Patreon, Facebook, Redbubble. And you can find our website at those two girls.club uh, where you can contact us and tell us to say something fun on the podcast if you like. That would be you fun. Should. It'd be fun. It's and so have a great fun. week, guys. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, I don't know. Go learn something. Keep it loose. Keep it tight. Say your prayers at night. Bye, 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 bye,